Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you are involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to take a look at some hot spots around the world, namely El Salvador, China, and the U.S. relationship, and what's happening in the Middle East. My guest today is an expert on these topics. My guest today is John Cavana. John Cavana was director of the Institute for Policy Studies from 1999 until 2021, and he is currently a senior advisor at the Institute. Mr. Cavana is the co-author of 12 books and numerous articles on a wide range of social and economic issues. His newest book is The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. John Cavana, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Great to be with you as always, Phil. I appreciate you being with me. John, before we get into all these hotspots, let's talk just for a second about the Institute for Policy Studies. What exactly is it? What does it do? Sure. Um... It's a, it's a very unique institution. It was founded 60 years ago by two foreign policy experts, Richard Barnett and a man named Marcus Raskin, who, among other things, is, was the father of our wonderful Maryland Congressman, Jamie Raskin. But the two of them left the Kennedy administration, set up IPS to be an independent research institution on domestic and foreign policy. And we work on everything from inequality, where we go deep. We've been researching both the growing gap between the world's billionaires and essential workers and remedies to that situation. But we also go deep, as we're about to, with you and me on foreign policy. Sure, if you go to your website at www.ips-dc.org for more information. Well, we've got we got a lot of hot topics to cover, so we'll have to do it fairly quickly, but let's jump right in. You just got back from a fact-finding trip to El Salvador. We don't hear much about El Salvador, but it is a major player in Central America and, well, throughout the Latin American region, really. But what, what were two or three of the major findings you discovered in your latest trip? Sure. Well, we went there. It's interesting. You're right. We don't hear as much about it in the United States, but it is central to the debate because Republicans have made migration perhaps the number one issue in the upcoming elections. And the Democrats spend a lot of time thinking and talking about it, too. And it's basically three countries where most of the immigrants coming in across the southern border are from. One of those is El Salvador. So it is very much in the mind of the Biden administration, even if they don't single out that country uh, in the public debate. A number of us, about 10 of us, went down from the US and Canada to look into the situation there, because partly because the debate is very weak on Central America in both Canada and the United States. Most people know very little except they've heard about the gangs and they've heard about 
migration. So we wanted to look into what is the president, Naib Bukele, doing around the gangs? What is he doing to deal with uh, civil liberties, the rule of law, and so on. He, he's he's turned the country, by the way. This is where some people may have heard of it. It's the number one country right now in terms of imprisoned people. He's got a higher percentage of the population in prison than the United States, which is very high here, and than any other country. So we wanted to look at that. And we also wanted to look at the, the book that I did with Robin Broad two years ago called The Water Defenders was about El Salvador doing this amazing thing, becoming the first country in the world to ban mining to save its rivers. And we wanted to get an update on how that campaign is going and whether they've been able, in effect, to, to save that's the rivers. A good, that's a good place to start. Let's start with the defenders and give a, just a brief overview of the book and what's the current status. That's two years later we're looking yeah. at. Yeah. Well, we we did the book because we couldn't think of a more unlikely win for the environment than what happened in El Salvador. So it's a it's a gripping story of ordinary people in northern El Salvador, most of them farmers, who all of a sudden were faced with a bunch of mining companies coming in in the early 2000s. Minerals prices were going up. Demand in China had skyrocketed. And they wondered whether this would be good for their country. And as they dug in deeper, they found out that there's no way to mine. They have gold there. There's no way to mine it without contaminating the rivers. You use cyanide in particular to separate the gold from the surrounding rock. And it's a small country, one big river system. So they mobilized everyone in that country into a conversation about whether they should, in effect, become the first country in the world just to ban it. Uh, and, and it's interesting, this is gold. This is not copper or lithium key minerals in the energy transition. This is gold, which we actually don't need uh, anymore. We don't need to do gold mining. And they convinced enough people, including people in the business community, that they passed a ban in 2017. Now, <clears throat> we went down because since that ban was passed, there is this new president, Naib Bukele. And we had heard rumors that he very, he's desperate for, for cash in that country. The economy is stagnating, it's not doing well. And so we, we had heard rumors that he wanted to get rid of that law and start mining again. So we went, I mean, just on that. And also we had heard that five of the people we had gotten to know in doing this book and, and telling this story had been thrown in jail by Bukele at the beginning of this year. So we wanted to see why they were put in jail and if, if there was any, any truth to the charges against them. Uh, and that's walked us into a hor this horrifying story of Bukele, under the guise of attacking gangs, has put 71,000 people in jail over the past 18 months. He's done it because he's got a supermajority in the Congress, in the legislature, he has had them every month for the past 18 months pass a law that he calls a state of exception, which means that it's basically martial law. He can arrest people with no charges against them just on suspicion that they may be involved somehow in gangs. And 
he can put them in jail and he can keep them there indefinitely. And he, he doesn't have to allow lawyers to see them. He doesn't have to allow family members to see them. And what we learned, and this is terrifying, it's interesting, you can have a good debate about whether putting gang members in jail makes sense. But anywhere, we learned that anywhere from 30 to 70% of the people in jail are not gang members. They're people who've been thrown in there for various different reasons, but they include the leaders of these civil society organizations like the Water Defenders. And it's, it appears to us that he is putting people in jail. He's also put labor union uh, leaders in jail. He's putting in jail the people who are opposing him or would oppose him in this case if he decided to reintroduce mining. So we are trying to make as much noise as we can that this man who's called, he calls himself the coolest dictator in the world. By that, he means he's, he has embraced, he loved Donald Trump. He came in when Trump was still president. He doesn't mind the title dictator. And he's, in a sense, saying to the world, my way of dealing with violence and insecurity is better than you democracies. You democracies in the United States and Latin America, you're riven with crime under your so-called democracies. I have come up with a way to solve it. I've made the streets safe. It's true, the streets are safer, but what people are missing is that amongst the people that he's rounding up and throwing in jail with no rights are innocent people, many of whom are his political or would be political opponents. Exactly. As I recall, he came in as a reformer, I believe. And of course, that went out the window. And now you see that he's implemented this autocratic, strongman, almost fascistic regime down there. And of course, we see that happening with Urban in Hungary. You see it with uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. If Donald Trump's talking about the same thing if he is elected president next year. So we have hardcore examples of what could happen if a democracy goes off the rails. Well, we could get we could spend the whole 20 minutes on this, I'm sure. What what do you see as the bottom line as far as well, first off, the economy. El Salvador switched to Bitcoin, as I recall. And that was a disaster from from my readings of the economic pages anyway. How did that play into the first off, is Bitcoin still the main monetary unit? And how is that playing out? Yeah, well, about 20 years ago, El Salvador became one of the few countries in the world that that scrapped its currency and went on to the dollar. So for the past 20 years, it's been the dollar. He made Bitcoin a parallel currency. So it's still both the dollar and Bitcoin. But he used international loans to buy Bitcoin when it was high, and then it collapsed. So he lost the country hundreds of millions of dollars. It, it, as we all know, Bitcoin is basically a casino. So it's interesting. The international financial institutions in the U.S. were opposed to this for all the right reasons. It's been a disaster there. But he uses it as part of his, I'm a maverick. I'm doing things differently. So that's part of what has trashed the economy. He's in trouble. He needs loans. And to, to your, I'm so glad, Bill, you put this in a global context. He's saying, look. And, and this is what he's playing off of, and those other dictators, including Trump, are as well. He's saying, look, the economy has not been so good for most people. 
He said that when he was elected, and it was true. Democracy had not delivered a ton in terms of economic benefits. And that's what the dictators play off of. If we were coming out of a period of prosperity, they would have a lot more trouble, but we aren't. That's what they're using. And here's where the leverage is for the international community. As people learn that he is actually a horrible autocrat, he's also corrupt. We've, we've we really looked into that carefully. He's taken international monies he's been lent and he's been using them for his own cronies. But we have leverage because he wants a new loan from the International Monetary Fund. He needs new aid from other countries. And it's time for other governments, including our own, to stand up and say, enough. We will not give money to a country that has turned its economy into a casino with Bitcoin. We won't stand up for this massive violation of the rule of law, of basic civil liberties. If you want money from the international community, you have to clean that up. And so far, disappointingly, the Biden administration has been hesitant to do that. It did it at the beginning, and now it's backed off, I think, because it is scared that if, if Bukele pushed more people across the border into the US, that would become even more of, of a big campaign issue. Uh, one situation that we uh, cannot avoid, obviously, is the carnage that's taking place in the Middle East right now. What What is your latest reading on what happened on October 7th with the Hamas invasion of Israel, the, uh, the killing of innocent civilians, and then the heavy-handed approach that Israel, as declared by many people, has taken in extracting retribution or getting even or whatever you want to call it. But uh, no matter what we say today, it'll be out of date tomorrow, I'm sure. But what what can be done to alleviate that horrible situation, get the hostages freed right, get, right. and get the Gazans who are innocent? I mean, these people had nothing to do with it and they're right in the firing line. I mean, they're right... The X is on the top of their buildings almost, but what can we do to do that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I do think there are things that can be done to lessen the violence. But just to take a step back, as you did to October 7th, you have in Gaza, and you've had since 2006, an extremist government there. And they launched this horrendous attack, a, huge, a blatant violation of international law and every norm of what, what is decent and killed uh, 1,400 people and, and took hostages. So most of the world com community came together to condemn that. In, in some ways, people have likened it, Joe Biden did, to 9-11 and what it did here in this country when 3,000 people got killed. But this is where I thought the best piece of advice that Joe Biden gave, and now we need to implement it, is he went to Israel, where you also have one of the most extreme governments in their history, just as Hamas is one of the most extreme in the history of, of, of Gaza. And he said to them, we made a mistake after 9-11. We jumped in with vengeance not justice. And we did things that we regret to this day. We invaded Afghanistan. We, we launched a war against Iraq. And we made things worse by responding with, with vengeance. It's interesting, IPS was involved in a statement four days after the 9-11 attacks that was called justice, not vengeance. And it called for trying to push for 
justice meaning bring the criminals to justice, try them, put them in jail, but do not do not react out of out of vengeance. Unfortunately, that's what the Israelis have done. And even though Biden said those words to President Netanyahu of, of Israel, he didn't follow through on them. The U.S. continued to push for massive military aid, said Israel has the right to protect itself, which obviously it does. But it then reacted with vengeance, has killed now over 11,000 people. We at, at IPS, we've been encouraging a ceasefire, and more and more people have joined that. A ceasefire now, a ceasefire. The, the interesting thing, why there's a potential solution here is there are other governments in the Middle East that have ties to Hamas. So something could be worked out, and it looks as though there could be a deal where Israel agrees to a ceasefire, Hamas releases the hostages, and then conversations begin about what is a completely untenable situation between Israel and both Gaza and then the West Bank. Gaza has essentially been blockaded since 2007. So it's been, has the highest rates of poverty in the world. It's been a horrible place to live even before the invasion. And so there needs to be a longer term solution in between Israel and the Palestinians, but that can only begin if you have a ceasefire. Clearly, other governments in the area don't want this to go on. They're already, part of what it looks like precipitated Hamas making that attack is that Saudi Arabia, believe it or not, was on, on the brink of an agreement with, with Israel. Those That sort of rapprochement and a, and a longer term solution that is good for the people of Gaza was in the works, but it's tricky to do this when you have extremist governments on both sides, Hamas and Gaza and Netanyahu and Israel. But the key here would be U.S. pressure. If the U.S. put Macron, the president of France, came out over the weekend for ceasefire. If the U.S. not, and the U.S. doesn't even have to come out for ceasefire, it has to push Israel into a longer pause. The pause could even be 48 hours to allow in humanitarian aid. To, there's no water and food in Gaza anymore. You've got to relieve that suffering. And once you've started that conversation, hostages are released. Then there's a chance for both the end of the worst suffering and the conversations about a longer term solution. Exactly right. And it seems like every time we go into the Middle East, we make the situation worse. You mentioned about the illegal invasion of Iraq by George W. Bush, uh, totally uncalled for, totally illegal. That has destabilized the Middle East more than anything that probably that we could have done or anybody else could have done. The situation in the Middle East right now, the Israelis may kill off a lot of the Hamas leaders, but they're not going to kill the concept of this terrorism. And something has to be done because Gaza has been referred to as an open air prison. And people, once they see that they have no hope for anything, desperation takes over. Right. Well, we're going to talk about that and a little more in just a minute. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with the PBS or Community Access Television Station, or perhaps an educational institution, 
that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our show and you'd like to share it, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at three hotspots around the world. Uh, one is El Salvador, the other is Middle East, and the other is the relationship between China and the United States. My guest is an expert on all of these topics. Mr. John Cavana was director of the Institute for Policy Studies from 1999 to 2021. John, we, we're talking about so many, so many dangerous areas, and uh, I agree with you on what you said. You've got to have dialogue, and you're not going to militarily destroy your enemy. It just isn't going to happen. It may, it may put them out of commission for a month, six months, a year, two years. They will be back, and they usually come back stronger and more deadly than we tried to get rid of. And countries of the world just don't seem to realize that. Well, before we run out of time, let's we've got one other area that's very dangerous, but I think it's improving a little, and that's the frosty relationship between China and the United States. What can be done to de-escalate the tensions between these two powerful countries? Because there are a lot of hawks. You you listen to some of the right-wing talk shows and Fox and some of these outfits just banging the drums to go to war, or go to war against Iran, go to war against China. Yeah. How's that worked out in the past? Not well. So let's rethink that one, folks. But what what do you see as far as de-escalating this conflict? Yes, well, it's timely you're raising this question, Bill, right now, because on Wednesday, President Biden will be meeting with President Xi of China in a summit in San Francisco. It's part of, there's a bigger, broader regional Asia meeting going on there, but the two of them are gonna sit down to talk. One thing they're gonna talk about to link this to the past conversation is China does have close relationships with Iran. And if if we're gonna keep the Gaza situation from blowing up into a regional war, it is key that Iran on base with it. Nobody in the region wants a broader regional war, but China is close to Iran. So I think part of what Biden will be saying to Xi is, we count on you to be in contact with the Iranians to try to keep things uh, from from blowing up in, in that part of the Middle East. So it's, it's, it's an important reminder that the United States and China have an awful lot they could do together. They each are allies with different countries. They each can talk to the leaders of different countries. And if truly we're gonna have a peaceful world, we need a way for the conversation between the US and China to move up one notch. I do wanna say to uh, President Biden's credit, he has sent major cabinet officials to China over the last six months. Janet Yellen from Treasury, Raimundo from, from Commerce and others, Blinken has been there to try to restart uh, conversations that have broken up over the past couple of years. For for us, it, IPS, but I think for most people around the world, the most important issue that they can work together on and that has gotten derailed is climate. We've got, These are the two countries that account for the majority of the world's emissions of greenhouse gases. And if we can create a creative pressure on each other to lower 
greenhouse gas emissions and work together towards solutions, that is the key to saving the planet. The person in charge of this from the US side is John Kerry, very able negotiator. He has been meeting with Chinese counterparts, but that stopped when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan and when, again, the conflict grew. Um, that could get restarted. But I, I just want to say one other point, because you alluded to this, Bill. The biggest opponents to this are the arms manufacturers. So for the past 50 to 60 years, we had a Cold War with the Soviet Union. That was good for arms sales. We then had a war on terrorism. That was good for arms sales. As that dwindled, the, the arms manufacturers looked for a new enemy. And the generals who know how to fight wars aided them. And so China became the hot spot. And it's been terrible to watch in Congress over the last year, every time there's a conversation about the budget, where we already spend over 53% of every discretionary dollar on the military, both Democrats and Republicans have come together. It's more the Republicans than the Democrats, but and said, we need more defense spending to fight the Chinese. This is a completely, it's not a made up threat, but it is not, we, we have a military that is massively bigger than the Chinese. And instead that money should be going into climate cooperation, economic cooperation, and building a relationship with what will be the two largest economies in the world for the foreseeable future. In several evaluations, audits that were done or tried to do at the Pentagon years ago, the US Government Accountability Office said that 20 to 25 cents on every dollar that we put into the Pentagon budget is wasted. And that is a huge amount. We're looking at what, $200 billion right now, if you look at what we've got in the budget. Now, everybody wants a strong defense, no doubt about that. But this military industrial complex has just grown like some gargantuan creature. And it's just taking more and more money and it's never satisfied. They always come up with new programs boondoggles like the F-35 jet, which is lucky if it can fly in a thunderstorm, it's so bad. And so this is, the American public would be absolutely shocked if they looked at what's going on with the military industrial complex. But John, we're gonna to have to come back and talk about that. We are out of time, my friend. But John Cavana, I wanna thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. I am Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us on Global Connections Television.